0: Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. This is it. This is the show. Thank you for joining. I am the host, Brady Huggett, and the guest today... No, what? You know what? Before we get to the guest, one item. Um, Recently, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was given out, and the winner, part of a three-person team, was Sir Gregory Winter. Now, I had uh, Sir Greg on this podcast... um, When was it? Uh, More than a year ago now. He had me into do the master's chambers at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And um, yeah, we talked about his research, his his life, uh, fascinating talk. If you'd like to know more about Gregory Winter, go to our archives, which you can find off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology, or go, or go to iTunes, or Acast, or Stitcher, or maybe just your phone to recent episodes, and you'll find the podcast. They are free. And congratulations, Greg Winter. Um, okay, now on to our guest. The guest... Christoph Lengauer is a uh, partner at Third Rock Ventures. He's at Celsius Therapeutics, Blue Rock. He's spent time at Novartis, Sanofi. Um, he is an Austrian by birth. We talked about that. His family is a long line of Austrians. He didn't want to come to the United States. He had no desire. He, he feels very European. Uh, he wasn't sure that he wanted to even um, continue in academic research uh, before he did his postdoc. But he did, and um, we talked about why that was. He is a uh, super interesting human being. Um, We talked about the refugee crisis and immigration. We talked about the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, both the the book and the movie. He was wrapped up in that scenario. Um, We talked about that and, well, of course, cancer research, that too. All that coming up. I was thinking about how to tie in um, this particular podcast with our sponsor, which is Johns Hopkins University, and it's super easy, and here's why. Christoph also spent more than a decade researching at Johns Hopkins University. Now, JHU has a program. It's called the MBEE Program, the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program. It is a two-year program. It is meant to take those who are adept at research and teach them about industry, how to launch and run a biotech company, what does it mean to do drug development, etc. cetera. Um, it's a great program. You can find out more information by going to enterprise.jhu.edu. And thank you, Johns Hopkins, for sponsoring this show. Now, on to Christoph. Listen up. Here it is, your First Renders podcast with Christoph Lengauer. I guess we could have just moved your chair up or no, up or down. I but no, fine. That's all
1: we can do
0: it does go up if you... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, but that's still it's that's still... Whatever. <laughs> that's good, yeah. yeah. All right, I think I might bring this up. A little bit. Yeah, okay. I think this is... is work. This is pretty good, yeah. Okay. I want to talk about... Uh, well, we'll talk about how you got to the U.S. first, but you were actually born in Austria. Is that true?
1: That is true, yeah. Yeah, where were you born? It's a small town in Upper Austria... Somewhere between Salzburg and Vienna, but but almost everything in Austria is between Salzburg. That's and right. Vienna. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And what did your parents do? Were, were were they Austrians forever by birth, or?
1: Yeah, actually, I did one of those tests, your heritage, and mine is very clean. Okay, There's has nothing else but Austria in that. Really? Yeah. It
0: got that specific.
1: Yeah, it's that specific.
0: I, I think. Um, I
1: think it's called. They call it like southern, southern, southern Germany, Austrian. Kind of thing. No. I had
0: one done too, mm-hmm. and it was um, mm-hmm. f- at least fifty percent Eastern European, which makes sense because my grandmother came over on a boat, and then maybe like Northern Europe, which could be UK Irish, I think, or I'm not even sure. But
1: for you, it was all Austria. It was all Austria. Yeah, I think they all lived in the woods and chopped woods. Like all, it, it actually it's an interesting family because um, there's a musical instrument called the. Choose harp. Uh-huh. I don't know if you ever heard that, but it makes this Westerns, They sometimes use that, and like because it makes this sort of sound. And there are two families really in the world that make that, and both make of the them, instrument. yeah, make the instrument. And they're both in that small village like some 20 miles outside of Steyr, where I'm from. Uh-huh. And my mom's family is one of those families. Those two families, of course, of course, hate each other, okay? They're a competition. But yeah, You're and, saying but they have the world market, okay? Still, <laughs> there's only
0: two families there's still today to make the Jews are? Yes, yeah. And so your your family's musicians, or your mother's side. No,
1: but I mean, of course, they know how to play it, but uh, they've been making that for um, centuries, actually. Mm-hmm. Huh. Therefore, yeah, it's, it's very sort of yeah. That's it. There's nothing else. And I believe in our extended family. I was maybe the first one besides my dad, but I think there's nobody else like cousins or like that finished. Like, nobody else finished high school. I think your dad did, yeah. but no one else. Yeah, no. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and so but you, so your mother's from this family that makes instruments. Your father was was what my you father do? was a teacher. He's a teacher. And your mother mm-hmm. worked literally in, I don't know, is it a factory making these instruments?
1: No, it's very small, but like, you know, they're all as, that they are. And she, I think, yeah, she 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 learned sewing, I believe. But when when I was born, she was just 17. Oh, young, mm-hmm. yeah. Your dad, young too? Mm-hmm. No, he was like eight years older. Oh, uh, yeah, But okay. yeah, when my brother then, my younger brother was born, my mom was 18 and a half.
0: Just the two two
1: of you? You and your no, brother? No, there's also a my sister who is... A couple of years younger.
0: Oh, okay. You're the oldest then? Yes. Yeah, I'm okay. Oldest, yeah. So you said your dad had finished high school, but no, no college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he did college oh, too. He did? Yeah, because oh. he became
1: a teacher, but like nobody else. Therefore, it, in my family, they always call me the doctor because sort of I think that comes with finishing college or something. Yeah, but you are a doctor. <laughs> I am sort of. Yeah. I mean, you have a PhD. You you have in a that PhD. Yeah, I a PhD.
0: Okay, so you're growing up in between Salzburg and Vienna, and uh, do you have any idea of really kind of what you want to do?
1: No, not really. Actually, I I was really good at school. Uh All parts of it. Yeah, it was super easy. uh, I I felt and, uh, um, and I read a lot. I read everything. I remember there was this bus station where we went to where we got off the bus when we went to school, and they had like this bookstore there, and Uh they always had this in front of the shop. They have this like cheap book kind of thing. Yeah, like a dollar. I bought like everything off there. You mean like like. 12 books, $12, I mean... Non-fiction, fiction, it was. Yeah. poems, everything. Yeah, and yeah. I read all of it, okay? Therefore, that was sort of... That was my world, in a way. and But I didn't know what to become or, or study, even. Therefore, that was not clear till... I was, I think, 17. There, I read one of those books from that bookstore. Uh-huh. And the translation to English is something like cancer when life goes wrong or something like that and it was a little bit about genetics Uh uh, but we didn't know much about molecular genetics. It was more like there's normal cells and then there's that's life and then uh, when that somehow mutates or when those genes kind of get like deformed or somehow changed or something like they'll use very weird wording for that like sort of inappropriate really for what what we now know and then said like if that goes wrong that's what cancer is therefore it's life going wrong and i i found that super interesting i i thought like this is something that people don't know much about this is something that needs to be revealed or discovered this is something that's not clear but sounds interesting new in a way and i'm like this is maybe something that I would like to explore. An alternative would have been, like, oil, oil industry. Really? Because, yeah. Such a because No, because it's about, it fascinated me to dig for something that you don't know where it really is and kind of find it deep underneath the water and, like, see if you can figure it out and yeah. then sort of take it and, like, do something with it. It's In a way, it is kind of similar. It's like, it, I think it's this concept of discovering some shit
0: um, so you're, you're 17 and you're thinking okay the oil industry or possibly something to do with genetics you're not sure and is your father is a teacher right is he sort of thinking was he encouraging one way or the other
1: yeah there was something else uh, I I like to paint uh-huh. and I'm not sure I was talented at it, to be honest but I liked it a lot yeah and I did it for myself, and people felt it was good, but I'm not sure about it. I was definitely interested in art, yeah. And therefore, if I compare it to stuff that I like, of course, I felt it was really bad. But uh-huh. like, I f- somehow people thought it's interesting, and therefore, I I explored that a little bit too to see if I can go to art school and maybe become a teacher, also like uh, teaching art and yeah. uh, painting myself. Um, but that's the only thing. My pe- my parents didn't encourage or discourage me to do anything really I think you know Um, but they just wanted me to be clear that becoming a teacher is kind of a tough life and um, In, in what way in that I think them bringing up a family was not easy because my mom was so young as I said and there wasn't really any money, so financially, you're we me didn't stuff. have a car till I was fifteen, Yeah. and therefore they felt like it's financially hard, and they somehow were hoping that since I was good at school, that I'd do something that maybe makes life easier financially. Yeah. Yeah. I think something like that, but uh, it was not a strong discouragement, but it was kind of there, and I heard it. I'm like, okay, maybe then oil or genetics. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the painting, right? <laughs> not <laughs> painting or teaching. Yeah.
0: Okay, so then you finished high school, and I think, um, did you go to, you did your undergrad in. Austria too, is that right?
1: Yeah, I started yeah. in Austria, oh, okay. um, in Salzburg, which is one of the universities. Yeah. Uh, as you know, in Austria, you just show up. You don't have to sort of uh, apply there. You just go there. Uh-huh. Um, that morning of when classes start, and day of? Uh, the day off, and that. you just go there. You pay, I believe, tuition for the year was at that time maybe $30 for the year. Wow. And you pay that, and then you're in. And then they deal with you somehow. They make space for you and provide uh, teachers, and uh, yeah, that's what you do. Is
0: it sort of like a winnowing out? Like anybody can go and sign up. Anybody can go if you have the thirty dollars, you can go. Yeah, Mm -hmm. who finished high school? But as the year goes on, are some people thinking I'm not qualified for this? I'm not, or I
1: don't want to do it, and they just sort of drop out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah? and (laughs) um, that's how university – Yeah, that's how it is. And um, it was interesting because. I studied human genetics, and not many people do that, especially at the time. Yeah. At the time, it was a field that nobody really knew. This is really this? This is uh, like That a, was eighty. Eight. Eighty something. No, eighty. Eighty something. 80 something yeah, 60s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, eighty something. 83 okay. Eighty-three or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, you just show up and uh, you go there, and not many study human genetics because it was kind of esoteric. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted, right? Yeah. Discovering something and something that not everybody kind of does. And uh, we had this this professor showing up the first day, and he I remember that because after that day, a lot of uh, of the those students dropped out because he gave this this emotional speech, and um, he said if you want to study genetics, um, this is something that will change the world. And better get used that this is something global. This is something where you have to have Gypsy blood in your you know, you have to have yeah gypsy blood in you, or something like that, okay? which by the way is a little bit ironic, uh, but we might <laughs> come to that later. You're like, but I don't, I'm 100% Austrian. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You have to have that. What he meant is, it will become global and will become uh, important and you will not be able to stay in Salzburg if yeah. you want to really achieve something. That's a small university. There are bigger places out there that advanced that yeah. earlier and that the research is more advanced somewhere else. We can teach you here at the small university which they did. I had an incredible education oh. uh, in the basics of biology and, and, and genetics. But the research and uh, um, sort of going it, bringing it, taking it somewhere was expected to be hard. And he said, like, if you're really good, you go somewhere else. And a lot of people didn't want that, and therefore they kind of dropped out. They didn't want to leave Salzburg? No. Oh, and therefore, oh, oh. we were only—yeah, but I only stayed there for um, three and a half years. That's short, but I had finished most of my classes by then. It's supposed yeah. to take at least five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but the classes I had finished, and um, I decided to go to Heidelberg. Right, okay. Because Heidelberg was, what I thought, the center of human genetics. There was this elderly professor there, uh, Professor Fogel, and he had written with Mutolsky the other famous American human geneticists, uh-huh. a book called Human Genetics. And it described the basics of human genetics uh, from population genetics all the way and a little bit in the last chapter about genes and the genome. The second last chapter was about chromosomes, of course, but uh-huh. like that's uh, as far as it went. Uh, yeah. and, that's uh, as far
0: as the body of knowledge went. Exactly. Chapter, and I yeah. found
1: that super interesting uh, how how one had learned to what genetics, how it works, and uh, um, because you can't see a gene, and that sort of fascinated me. If you working on something that you can't see, that's all in your head, it's all deducted, that I found interesting, and I said, I need to go there. And... Um, You'd read the book already? Yeah, I had yeah. read that yeah. book, and um, I, I, I applied there and got in for my diploma and then stayed on in Heidelberg for my PhD.
0: Right, which is another, how long did that take, four or five years?
1: Yeah, four years, yep. And that was super interesting because uh, I worked in the lab of uh, Thomas Kramer, and uh, Thomas had just returned from Yale, where uh, he, together with uh, Peter Lichter, who was then also at the German Center of uh, Cancer Research, Mm -hmm. uh, also in Heidelberg, had, um, together with others, uh, discovered what's called FISH
0: and yep, fish, to a yep, yep.
1: fluorescence in cyto hybridization, uh-huh, yeah. and it's basically you paint parts of the genome, and you can with fluorescent probes, and you can see that then both on chromosomes but also in the nucleus, and um, because he wanted to understand the topography of chromosomes, he thought that there is a system to it, which means. I mean, we have all those chromosomes and they sit in the nuclei, but they don't really fit in there well. Therefore, they are, de- they are like – they're all like in long threads yeah. in there and they are messy. And in uh-huh. a way, they need to condense then before they divide. Yeah. And uh, nobody – and people thought maybe that's random like spaghetti just sitting in the bowl – and so the question is, why do they even or need to condense? are they actually... No, but like, is there an order? Is that there a topographical order of those chromosomes? Is it not just I taking see. spaghetti, yeah, yeah, yeah. throwing it into yeah. a ball? But is it maybe that certain chromosomes or regions are always on certain places? Some people thought there were hooks on the on the membrane that maybe the ends of chromosomes attached to so that they are not getting clumped up uh-huh. and because it's totally messy when it, it condense. And then I mean, like, how, how does that work? Yeah. yeah. And he wanted to study that. But I wasn't interested in this. I liked fish because I thought one can stain, one can find abnormalities in nuclei uh-huh. because we knew from chromosomes that sometimes there's something wrong that there can be translocations where actually two chromosomes come together yep. and then one gene sits in the neighborhood of another one and does something weird and that causes cancer. Yeah. And, we, and I thought that hasn't been very accessible to us at the time because we looked at chromosomes. And I thought like maybe we can see that in a better resolution in the nuclei. And I wanted to use that for it. Therefore, there was always a tension in the lab between figuring out the topography of chromosomes that I really didn't care about uh-huh. um, and me and a couple of others trying to understand if we can see uh, chromosomes abnormalities that indicate cancer or yep. allow the diagnosis for cancer.
0: Yeah. And so w- this this uh, tension. Were, were you okay? You're going to work. He's the. This is the PI of the lab. Yes. So you would work on the topography for a while, yes. and then when he would turn his back, you'd go over and start thinking about cancer again.
1: Yeah. He got interested in, of course, too. Right. Uh, uh, because. Uh, at that time, the technology was just new, and it, everything counted. Like, any application of a new technology was kind of interesting, and we published a lot, oh, which yeah. later on helped me, Yeah, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. because everything was new, and he was super supportive of it, of course, yeah. Huh.
0: Okay, so then I think uh, I, I, this is where I have some sort of gap in my research maybe, mm-hmm. but I know you came to the U.S. and to, to Johns Hopkins, but I don't know why. And I don't mm-hmm. know – I mean, we talked a little bit about this before. Like, you weren't sure that you wanted to continue in research, I think.
1: Yeah, it, it's it, – Both. Um, This is after your PhD? Yeah, I got my PhD, and then I'm like, okay, what do I do? All my friends, um, they went to the U.S. Uh Because that's sort of what, remember the gypsy blood? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. (laughs) If you are good, you need to go to the U.S. Because that's where where it really happens in terms of research. Therefore, all of us who were kind of good, were really good, went to the U.S. And I didn't want to. I don't know exactly why but I didn't feel like it at all. And
0: I mean, you weren't married or anything. Ah, yes, we, well, I weren't. was
1: married already. Actually, we had already uh That's crazy. Yeah, we had already three children. So at that might the be time. part of it. You they were super uprootend. young. I was yeah. very young also. Yeah. I mean, um super young actually. Therefore, our first child was still born when I was uh in Salzburg. Therefore, I was third year college at so the time. So you were you were twenty one. I something. was twenty one. Yeah, that's like your, it's like your mother. You had children yeah, very young. Yeah, like your mom. I thought that was cool because uh, my mom watched the same movies as we did, and she listened to the same music. That and is cool. I, I yeah. really thought that's kind of cool. Therefore, I wanted to be part of my children's life in a very sort of young way. Young way. Yeah.
0: So how, how I you... liked that.
1: Therefore, that was the idea, and sort of we got our childrens really young. I was like twenty when we got married. Twenty and then, when you got married. Yes, yeah. and then we had. Three children and um, um, and yeah, that was not the reason. So, as you'll see later, because I ended up in the US yeah, with yeah. three young children, yeah. they were like two, four, and five at that time. Okay, therefore, that was not really the. the I just didn't feel like. I felt that, I felt very home in Europe, uh-huh. and I feel that. I had this feeling of belonging. To Europe in a way and I thought I in a weird way I owe that to my country. That's very really strange when I think about it. Yeah, um, but
0: you were you were in Germany though at that yeah,
1: point. Yeah, right? and that's yeah. why I wanted to go back. And oh, I, I went back to Austria. Okay. Not that it is that far away, but <laughs> yeah. um and there was this institute called IMP, Institute uh-huh. for Molecular Pathology. It was a very famous institute it still is. It was sponsored at the time by Genentech and Bering Ingelheim two pharma companies, or Uh Pyodex. And it was, in a way, sort of a little bit of an ivory tower, the elite research place in Europe. New, um, top researchers, and I wanted to be part of that. Yeah, And I applied there, and I got in, and this is where the best people were, I felt. And I didn't like it very much. It was... A great place, and I still sort of remember that, how, how quick thinkers there were. But uh-huh. I somehow felt it was, at the time, now it's different, isolated. Isolated in its research, a classical sort of science ivory tower. Yeah. And I always struggled with that at the time, and I still do. Um, I think science must be more open and cannot be sort of isolated, even if it's basic research. And I somehow was not comfortable with that. That was one. The other thing was I got very involved with uh, um, r- helping refugees. And those were...
0: how did So how did that happen? <laughs> and that's so outside of the ivory tower that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, that happened, remember, in 1989, uh-huh. the wall came down. Yeah. And... It started when um, the Austrians sort of uh, cut the fence because all those refugees sort of went via Hungary and then they were all like there and then uh, they opened that fence and that sort of caused that first no. migration. And then the wall sort of broke, okay? And no, no, so
0: I actually don't think I know this. You're saying mm-hmm. the the Austrian government had a like a, a fence up to keep Hungarian refugees out.
1: We've had this... Uh, Austria is sort of was always in between things right yeah, and uh-huh. it sort of was always the door to the Balk, the, 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 yeah the door to the Balkan in a way, and because our neighboring countries were the former yugoslavia uh-huh. um then Hungary uh-huh. and then at the time Czechoslovakia yeah there were three sort of communist countries and uh um and then it was just like Germany and like Switzerland, right? On the other so, side, sort right? Of on the other side, right. Therefore, it was very exposed in a way to that, and Vienna always was sort of, sort of in between that, and uh, yeah, a lot of people started wanted to leave some of those communist countries, including Eastern Germany or Poland, um, and they either went to the embassies of. in their country or others because Mm -hmm. they were neutral places and sort of tried to get out. And then some of them ended up at the border of Hungary and Austria and climbed the the fences of the border or tried to sort of break into their country or things like that. And Austria sort of saw that because of all those pictures everywhere and decided to sort of symbolically cut that fence and said, like, you know what, just stop climbing, just just come in exactly yeah. Just yeah. you can't stop that you can't yeah. build walls or fences high enough so that people can't come in that's silly yeah. let's just like open it up and come in be welcome okay and that sort of – and then many of those came back to Germany and basically via a big loop ended up very close to where they came from. Let's say they were from eastern Berlin. That's sort of how they end up in the western Berlin kind ah. of things, very close to where they came from. I see. And I think it was part of the reason why actually eastern Germany noticed that's becoming really silly
0: to have this keep wall. people so, and that yeah. wall.
1: Yeah. And uh, to everybody's surprise, that wall was, you know, sort of, yeah, opened. Yeah um I in I think fall of eighty nine. I do remember that, yeah. yeah. And then thereafter were a lot of that wasn't easy. And that was then also the time of um the wars in Yugoslavia as a consequence. Right now we have Slovenia and like, you know, we have like, you know, Macedonia and those uh-huh. countries that were a result of that. But at that time it was Tito Yugoslavia held together as a communist country. And um there was civil war. And that a lot of people didn't want to serve in the army, and those people came. Then in Kosovo, the Alba- I mean in Albania, the Kosovo Albanians sort of uh, also uh, revolting, and some of some of them came, and uh, that's how sort of everything broke apart there, and a lot of refugees uh, ended up in Austria and in Germany, in particular, also in France, and the Germans didn't like that. Yeah. And all those refugees were applying for asylum or tried to because it was one way of staying for a while uh-huh. and couldn't, but that was not really organized well. And they kept them together in those in places, in old hospitals or in former uh, restaurants that were no longer there and sort of broken down, like, factories and yeah. say like, hey, that's where we put you.
0: You, you stay here until we figure out. Exactly. Yeah. We'll figure
1: out, the whole process and what we do with you and how you will, you know, till then you can't really leave that place because we know, control you somewhat. Yeah. And that's how it was. Yeah. And the population didn't like that. Okay. And they burned those places. You mean the, the refugees burned the places. No, the 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 Germans. Oh, oh
0: they didn't like them being held they didn't I li- see. They, yeah. they, they, they
1: were afraid of the refugees. Yeah, they yeah. thought like, hey, yeah. you know, they rape women or yeah. they, uh, this is not uh, a, they do stuff, I mean- they steal. Okay. I mean it was like it was sort of that especially also in what used to be the former Eastern Germany. Yeah. Because now they were finally free and now other people sort of come in and they take stuff away like um Houses to live and jobs that that had to be created yeah. and then food to be bought and like, you know, places that need to be, hospitals, and you know, like all those kind of things. Therefore, they were jealous in a way, uh, or at least that's how I explain it, and afraid yeah. of something they didn't want to deal with. I mean, that's not uncommon to what we are going it's, here. I was just, say, I mean, this this just going to say, this is ongoing today. This yeah. is like yeah. the same discussion. Yeah. And there were some people who felt that was unfair because we didn't know those immigrants or illegals or refugees or asylum applicants. We didn't know those people, really. We cannot just say, hey, you know, they're all bad and they're all dangerous. Mm -hmm. Maybe actually. And what we did, and I was part of that, we said, like, because in that village outside of Heidelberg where we lived, there was also one of those restaurants and like 45 or so of those refugees came in and the village revolted. This will be... Disaster! This will be, you can't walk in the street anymore. This is unsafe. They will hang their clothes outside of their balconies. They will, like, throw away food that's left over. They will demolish things. They will not mow their lawn and, like, okay. And we said, hey, that's maybe not fair. What we do is let's get to go, let's get to know those people. And let's introduce them and their stories to the village, and we organized a big event, and hundreds of people showed up, and we introduced the families and their stories of those foreigners to people to make it personal.
0: But how did you, who is this group? How did you join this group? How did you, did you, were you seeing this on the news and you thought, well, I'm gonna start a group or join a group or? Yeah, there were
1: like three or four people, and we sat down one evening and just said, hey, you know, It came out of a conversation we said like look this is going on in our village and they will show up in the next two weeks and somebody said like hey maybe that's not right or fair and then we had this idea and we just got together and formed a group we later on on won a human rights award for for heidelberg in that regard because it became actually something more professional later it ended up being organized uh women helped uh women to find doctors uh we helped with issues at school. There were translators organized and, of course, lawyers uh, deployed to help with the asylum cases. Yep. That's how it started. And we protected those people when uh, when um, the right wing attacked those uh, refugee places and uh, the police was not willing to help or support. And therefore, we formed the human chains to sort of protect that in a way. How big was your group? It was then... Um, our group in that village was maybe like 100 people, but in Heidelberg and the other places was thousands. And uh, it was this became a, big. Yeah, yeah we all sort of came together. It's like you have to imagine it like this when somebody in some small village, let's say in Arizona, somebody says like, hey, you know, they're illegal immigrants. Let's just introduce them and be like be non-judgmental at first. And then somewhere else that's happening too and people kind of exchange and then organize themselves around it. And eventually that's uh, maybe statewide or maybe nationwide. And all those uh, organizations and people helping and supporting form this alliance yeah. and become stronger. Become stronger when it comes to then making, When yeah. it comes to supporting on the legal side, uh, uh, in terms of um, um, PR and like telling stories and TV coverage and whatever you want. Therefore, yeah, it became so, a, a movement. So a few things. I mean, so <laughs> you, you
0: you had some friends and you thought we're going to do this thing and you started this thing, but you realized that other people, of course, did have the same idea. They also felt the same that you did, and then you began to link up. Yeah. But how did you know – you know, did you know that some right-wing group was going to attack the restaurant that night and you went there ahead of it? How did you know that those things were going on in order yeah. to be there to defend uh, these refugees?
1: We knew that this was going on in other parts of the country. Therefore, it had to be sort of thought about and we had – Planned, or we had sort of organized ourselves. We are prepared for that. Therefore, we had those phone chains. That once something suspicious also happens, even in the middle of the night, that those phone chains get activated, and then our sort of all of us ended up showing up.
0: So just. I mean, we don't have to talk about this forever, but I'm so like one night. Tell me what happens. The phone chain goes off. Yeah, you, get you know out of those. Head,
1: you know those like little bombs that people throw because like you can, you know, they always alcohol in there and like Molotov you know, cocktails. Molotov cocktails, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And when they sh- they showed up with uh, many of them, and then they throw them and like start, things start burning, and then nobody shows up, police or so. And then we do. <laughs> you scary. show up
0: after the. Yeah, After immediately then, yeah, of
1: course, because, you know, help, and it's usually just like, you know, I don't believe in, or well, I believe that with, you can do a lot if you, if you stand for something and you're nonviolent, I think you can have enormous impact. I think it's something that surprises and confuses people who are violent and don't understand really why. I believe in that. That yeah. sounds super naive, but I think it's actually has a lot of power. I think in standing in, up for what you what you believe in, and I think it makes other people, at least, um, reflect on it.
0: You mean to, so to not meet their violence with violence? Yeah. It almost makes them stop because this isn't the expected reaction that yep. they would. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, you're telling me that you, like, show up and the building is on fire?
1: I mean, it was it was just the beginning of it, right? Yeah. You know, where the first sort of of those more cocktails sort of flew. And, um, but then, of course, you know, we then call uh, um, fire department and I see. they okay so Because you're the, then yeah. it's public knowledge and yeah. then it's sort of exposed and then it's no longer hidden. And then it's sort of something where you need to act on and then, of course. I see, oh, that's amazing so That's how it goes And that the reason why I tell you that Because that's, it, fast, it, it became into, important to me And I spent quite some time with that Because I saw the suffering and the, the needs that those people have As many of us have too yeah. And I saw that one of the roots for it is actually the status And we have this discussion here in this country too that actually, yes, there's one thing about illegal immigrants, but one of the biggest issue is the fact that they are illegal. Yeah. That causes, that's that's maybe the source of most of the problems associated with it. Be it crime, be it like sort of underprivileged, being not having a chance to sort of grow up in this society and like, you know, establish yourself in the right way. And um, that root cause... Uh, with refugees is that they don't get asylum. Then they can't work and without work, then they don't know what to do and then problems arise. And I started getting involved and um, accompany uh, some of the refugees to their asylum application when they had the interview. You shop at your interview and then you get rejected, okay? And we try to sort of prepare for those interview better, tell them what to say and what not to say and like how to tell their story. and that's how I got involved on the legal side, and I studied those laws, and I bought all the books. Uh, you know, I like reading yeah, anyway, yeah, but yeah. I just... Uh, and I bought all those books, and I learned civil law, and I learned sort of uh, uh, refugee laws, and the United Nations High Commission of Refugees, and like the United and the Amnesty International, and like those were sort of sort of the new sort of conversation partners. and. Um, the Geneva Convention and how it all relates towards the law that we have written. And um, I became, re- I found that again interesting because I think it's super creative. Because there's a written law and it's useless unless you interpret it. And mm-hmm. that's again all in your head. Mm-hmm. I like things that you don't see. Yeah. And it's in your head only. Therefore, the way that you argue is not about sort of necessarily the interpretation of the letter of the law. But it's about creativity of what you, how you make those. How to apply the law? How how to apply that? How to make it something living? Yeah. And uh, I started to write some of the cases, and I started to bring bring winning cases. And then later in Austria, I won a a decision against the uh, Republic. one of those high court decisions. I uh, had to change the law based on that. You... No, you cannot do that, but you can write it and then a lawyer has to submit it. Okay, so it was and your brief that yes. the lawyer... Oh, man. And um, that that was really great because the Austrian law was considered unconstitutional because it violated the Geneva Convention and had to be uh, rewritten. And I was very proud of that. Yeah, I would and be too. And therefore God. that became a fascination and I... I ended up during my postdoc in Vienna going to jail, uh, detention, jail where those uh, refugees are held in order to get deported. And um, then, um, yeah, I was there, I would say, every day from like six till eight in the morning. And that's where addresses were changed in, in, in Austria and like those those jails. And then I went to my regular work. Lab, yeah. And after my lab work, um, um, those um, people showed up at our house and stayed there usually till 1 or 2 in the morning. That's why we gave legal advice and um, and sort of prepared their cases.
0: How are you sleeping?
1: Little. I don't sleep much. <laughs> still? S- no, still not. No, I got get, get up at 4 oh, um, still. And uh, I, I. But that's just because I don't mind that. It's yeah. okay. I sleep yeah. 4 hours or so. That's enough for you. That's, you want that's enough, and it's okay. And... Um, Um, You know, what fascinated – first of all, I think I had an obligation to do this. So it wasn't easy because our kids were growing up and my wife was at home and it was a lot of time. But she also encouraged me because, like, when those people get deported, then we knew they get shot at the airport. Shot at the airport? Of course, not everybody, but the ones that you had to identify who they are. That small percentage – Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: Of so people who were coming to those countries because they were really in danger. Ah. And I focused on certain groups. And, for example, Kurds. I see. Um,
0: You're saying certain groups were really, really in danger. Certain individuals, certain back, groups. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yep. We knew this. Yep. And uh, Kurds, for example, who had death penalty, but sort of came out of those jails uh, from Iran or Iraq or Turkey. Um, Kosovo Albanians who um, didn't serve in the Serbian army to win the civil war. Yeah. By law, not the reason for asylum because it's civil war and dissertation doesn't count, but they cannot be sent back, and therefore, there are certain rules when you cannot send people when there's like danger to their body, and so But nevertheless, that was not applied, and people were sort of sent back, things like that. That was sort of my area of specialty, and uh, victims of torture um, who had to relive those trauma, the trauma, when they can. When they went to detention when they went to jail again, women for example, when yeah. they then have to sort of undress and reliving the rapes of when they were in jails in their countries where they were sort of uh, molested for example and or victims of uh, torture like violence or so reliving that in dark rooms in jails or so therefore that sort of um and a lot of them went on hunger strike and uh, sued their lips, for example, in order to not... They, they physically yes. sew their lips shut? That's what they do. Oh, my God. And in order to escape the detention jail because security was less uh, uh, advanced in hospitals and it was yeah. an easier way to escape. Oh, and yeah. sometimes if the if the prisons didn't know what to do, do with the... Um, with the refugees on hunger strike, what they do is they take them and they just put them in front of the prison so that then um, ambulances pick them up or so because they felt no responsibility to actually treat them. Yeah. If They put them there, and that was a way sort of to escape. If, uh, and what I liked about it, it, it was uh, very different to the science I did at the time. Mm-hmm. It was... Immediate, an immediate measure of your success. When you won a, a case, then that person was free. If you stopped an airplane not going to the place because you talked to the pilot on the runway, um, then that person came back. Uh, if you lost, that person was gone. Therefore, it was an immediate sort of uh, feedback loop. Yeah. That I was missing a little bit in science. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, science is a long road. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And then I was sort of on the expert committee for the Austrian government for questions of uh, and issues of uh, asylum and refugee, and I felt that policymaking and the immediate impact on people was was impactful and satisfying. And I wanted always my science be impactful and satisfying, and I somehow didn't see this anymore. Yeah. I think that's what many postdocs go through.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you—you, I mean—but how so? You mean because, like we just mentioned, the long road of it, or,
1: or yeah, because a lot of the work we are doing is just not very translational, yeah. um, and it's hard and it's long term and it's difficult between it original discovery towards a drug for example especially in academia where the translational piece is very very difficult to see or experience yeah therefore I said maybe I should stop science but before I do so I wanted to be certain that's the right move I felt some responsibility I was the first one when going to college in the whole family therefore I felt like I cannot sort of let anybody down yeah and I felt some responsibility to be certain about it, and I said to myself i want to maybe i should maybe I should try to get into the best lab molecular genetics lab that works on cancer in the world and see how it's there and if I then still don't like it, then I get out of it yeah and i Once I had that insight, I applied to the lab of Bert Vogelstein at Johns Hopkins. Just one place? Just one place. One person. One person. Yeah, one One lab. One person, one place, one lab. And I asked Bert if I could join his lab, and he invited me for an interview, and um, when I left from the interview, I asked him what's next, and he said, yeah, when do you start? And I think the interview was on July third. I believe, forgot the year. Ah, uh, 1992. No, wrong. 1994. Uh-huh. 1994, July third, or something like that. And on July 24th, that year, I started at Hopkins.
0: So you went home, packed everybody up, the family yes. up, brought them over.
1: Yep. Yeah. 14 days later.
0: Wow. Well, I want You just mentioned something. I want to ask you about it because you said you were sort of like I don't know if science is. For me, I want a more immediate um, satisfaction for the things I'm doing, and that you had this responsibility to your family—the first one to go to college, as you said. But had you not gone into science and kept on the path you're going, I mean, I don't. You think anyone would have been disappointed in that in your family? That's quite a career you're having, a different career, but.
1: No, I think of course nobody would have been supported actually because that's sort of what many members of my family have been doing. They're all very socially oriented. I think it comes out of maybe a very strong uh, um, Catholic heritage that's very prevalent in both my families. Uh And um, in a way, I see this again coming through in our children who have all like very socially oriented sort of professions and none of them is in science. Are they? Are uh, they all in the US? They are all in the US. Yeah, and um, therefore I'm happy that they do that now. But yeah. I left. No, it would have been absolutely okay. Yeah. I just wasn't sure about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And therefore I said, like, let's go to the US only for that reason, yeah. because that's where that lab is, and um, I intended to do a short postdoc, see if I like it, and I liked it a lot.
0: Yeah. And as you said, I mean, Vogelstein, Ken Kinsler was in there too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're both very translational researchers. Uh, That must have been exactly what you wanted.
1: It was exactly what I wanted. I felt very comfortable because I could be authentic. And whenever I can be authentic, I feel comfortable. And I could be the way I am. And in that, I could think creatively. And there was a lot of space to do whatever you wanted. And it ended up being also super successful. We discovered so many important genes and oncogenes yeah. and uh, tumor suppressor genes and how cancer works. And, uh, um, how long were you in that lab? I was there 12 years. 12 years, yeah. For, for That's uh, a great eight. time
0: for, I mean, so many discoveries in that period, right? It took you yeah. into 2002 or three.
1: Something like that, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was the time where we discovered that all cancers are genetically unstable, which explains now heterogeneity of tumors. It explains resistance. We didn't understand that at all. We had no idea where it's coming from. And uh, that now all it makes sense, right? Because uh, if cancers are unstable, inherently basically can change, then they find ways to escape uh, therapy. And that's the resistance we know. And of course, that implies that uh, all cancers are that every cancer is different from the other cancer, that yeah. most likely no cancer ever occurring in the future of mankind will be the same as any cancer that ever occurred in anybody uh, since the beginning of mankind. So yeah. That's how cancer actually is. But there are commonalities in that. And yeah. we were interested in finding the things that are in common, which are hardwired in cancer. And that's why we focused on the genes that are hardwired and the mutations. So it's
0: sort of like this, this continuum of understanding that, you know, first, it's cancer is cancer. Cancer must be the same in anyone. And then you decide, well, no, actually, like, lung cancer is different from prostate cancer. But then, well, your lung cancer is different from my lung cancer. In fact, my lung cancer is different from everybody else's lung cancer. That discovery you're talking mm-hmm.
1: about? Yes, and that's an interesting phenomenon because, yes, we had grouped cancer by tissue type, by uh, organ. Yeah. Lung cancer is lung cancer. And we had a treatment and breast cancer is breast cancer. And we had some form of treatment. And then we understand that uh, within that there's heterogeneity and that uh, lung, not every lung cancer is like every lung cancer and not every breast cancer is like every breast cancer. And we had focused on colon cancer, actually. That's sort of what the Wolstein lab is famous for. And then we found out, hey, what we had discovered uh, in colon cancer actually exists also in lung cancer. The same gene is mutated there in some of them and maybe even in breast cancer. And therefore, then you have all of a sudden a commonality that's no longer uh, defined by your organ, but it's defined by your genetics. Mm -hmm. And now, actually, the way we treat now patients is that a mutation that occurs in the lung cancer drives that therapy we give. And a patient with colon cancer who carries the same mutation, the same gene, the same treatment applies. Therefore, now we no longer treat by organs, but we treat by the genetic changes or base in the individual cancers, and that goes across tissue types.
0: And how did you... So 12 years, when did you decide, or how did you decide, I guess, to, to leave the lab?
1: I... We started to restructure the lab a little bit Um, there were three reasons Uh, I think Bert was getting older Uh and noticed that in spite all the incredible discoveries that the industry had not translated many of them into drugs Mm -hmm. and he felt some urge to take this on, both on the therapeutic side, but also on the diagnostic side. But at that time already was obsessed with the idea that if we were to detect cancer earlier, we would pre- prevent most of them. Mm-hmm. Because the reason why, if you treat a cancer late, then it's very difficult uh, and a lot of people die. But if you treat a cancer early, then your chances of surviving is much better. That's better than any drug that can ever be made. And that was already his obsession and idea at the time. Uh, In my case, I was just promoted to associate professor. Therefore, uh, you had some time. Uh Because that pressure of publishing was moved out for five years, then you get then your full professor position. Uh There was the luxury of having a little bit of time. And In Ken Kinsler's case, um, his wife at the time had just died of leukemia. And that was a shock for all of us because she was very, very young. And we, who know everything about cancer, were powerless Mm -hmm. in that. And those three constellations together, we decided to do more translational work. And we focused on uh, replacing colonoscopy with a non-invasive test so that more people get diagnosed early that ended up... uh, us discovering liquid biopsy. uh Then uh, we wanted to find out more about the cancer genome and figure out the way to sequence not only isolated genes, but the whole genome. And that ended up being sort of uh, uh, companies like PGDX Mm -hmm. came out of our lab, but also the whole idea of uh, whole genome sequencing. And we wanted to apply some of our finding drug discovery. And this, in that part, I sort of took on. And I found it fascinating because it's so difficult. And eventually, um, I wanted to do this full time. That was the first reason. There was a second reason. I wanted to go back to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I remember that that was the day after the election when Bush won the second time the election it was clear to me that I'll go back and I met with Bert that day and um, I then uh, left the lab and I joined Novartis uh, in Boston Um, with the hope uh, Novartis being a Swiss company that I will soon go to Basel, to the major research center yeah. for oncology. Um, that's how I ended up in industry. Again, it was a relative emotional decision, sort of driven by the desire to do drug discovery, uh-huh. but also the insight that I should go back to Europe. But you, but you didn't, did you? Yeah. Um, the plan was, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't at the time. But um, after three and a half years at Novartis, I did go back to Europe for Sanofi. Yes, I became global head of oncology discovery. Ah, okay. Uh, with headquarters in Paris, therefore, um, we we left the US then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, again, the whole family to Sanofi. Yes. How old were the kids then? Your oldest um, must have been.
1: The oldest was in college. Oh, okay. The middle one was just about to start college, and the third one went with us and uh, so went the, to American School of uh, of Paris. Yeah. The
0: two stayed here for school. One was yes. already in school. Yep. Okay. And your youngest, your, was it a daughter? Or am I yeah, making that three up, daughters, yeah? yes. Oh, three daughters. All, okay. all,
1: the youngest one came, came with us. Uh, all ended up being in Europe for an important part of their lives eventually. Uh, the oldest one did study actually in Lugano. Oh, for she was kind of there already yeah that's in switzerland italian speaking part yeah. of switzerland um the middle one was then later fulbright scholar in leipzig germany they've all spent sort of an important part of their early adulthood in in europe and i think they now live the same thing as all of us europeans do in this country which is uh, to figure out where they belong to yeah and i think many people here do that and um it's complicated.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the life of an immigrant is always like that, right? Yep. I mean, they're always sort of one foot, or at least in your mind, one foot back in the home country. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was Sanofi. But then, I, because I, I, I was sort of going through your research or your background and thinking, and I thought, I couldn't figure out how you got to Blueprint. Was that through Third Rock or before Third Rock?
1: It was uh, before Third Rock. Um, I think I liked my time at Sanofi a lot. Because I was the big head of, of I led that thing yeah. uh, in the discovery, and that I felt was fun. But I also noticed that it's very difficult in big pharma to, uh, to work fast. Yeah. And I am not comfortable doing something just for the sake of a job or a power. For me, it's all about impact. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I was replaceable. I felt that other people can do this equally well or maybe better. And um, then I'm never comfortable. And I joined Blueprint, which was very different because Blueprint was a startup, um, it was a theater company, um, and had 10 people when I joined. I was number 11 at Blueprint. And I came from a Sanofi um, Aventis company that had, where I had more than 400 people in my group. Uh-huh. That from you Very, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. They have a very, very different setting. I thought I'll be bored. I this that's not the case. Uh, and when people ask me in the interview, I remember that, um, why I would ever do this, right? How, how can you, like, from a position of power... Join a biotech company that's about to just being built.
0: As, as what? As a CSO? I something? was CS, Yeah, yeah a CSO. Okay.
1: But still, of like a few people. And yeah. like, why would yeah. you ever do this? Is this not a step backwards? And yeah. like, things like that. And I, I remember what I said. I said, uh, no, I, I need time to think again. I want to have time to think. That's, that's why I became a scientist. Yeah. And um, I had that time and Blueprint became a very successful company. Oh
0: yeah, for sure. Did you? How did you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't answer it add in the paper. How did you know the position was there at Blueprint? Were you recruited somehow?
1: Yeah, uh, Chris Varma, who was uh, CEO at the time, had uh, approached me. We had known each other for many years, and I guess uh, he just uh, reached out and uh, said, like, is this something you want to do? And um, it was funny because I originally, I didn't tell the Sanofi people where I'm going because it was kind of a secret. Yeah. But I told them it's a it's a biotech startup, and they all said, "Are oh, you going to Blueprint?" <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> they I, knew. How, how do you know? And they said, "Because that's what you want to do. Uh, because okay. Blueprint was making has been making medicines for genomically defined." Yeah, population. it's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. That's what I had done in the Vogelstein lab many years back. That's what I tried to do at Sanofi. That's what I believed in. I believe that when you are able to define the patients that need that drug based on their genetic composition of the tumor, mm-hmm. that the drugs that you make will be powerful. And then a clinical trial doesn't take 13 years and a billion dollar. But then you can have with 25-patient breakthrough therapy designation. Then you can have impact and see this early on. And now, seven years in, Blueprint, there are three drugs in the clinic and all three work. And um, they have incredible response rate in areas of where the diseases are hard to treat or have no line of treatment where there's no type of treatment and um, um yeah, that was in a way my hope, and that worked out really well
0: so but then so then, and then you got to third rock and then yeah, uh, and then third rock, you know uh, and this is what this was my reading when I was looking at it, and then from third rock onto Celsius as sort of like a founder there, yeah yes that's yeah. correct,
1: okay. yeah, um. I got to know the people from Third Rock and again what fascinated me is the being authentic being um, that you can be the way you are and um, being quick in your head thinking fast Mm -hmm. those are the attributes that fascinate me and I think third stands for that and um, when Alexis Poesia asked me if I want to sort of help discover companies that means developing ideas into what could become a company
0: and you thought yeah you definitely want to do that
1: then I thought I definitely want to do this yeah. because ideas and young companies or concepts are like like babies or small plants it's so easy to damage them just like one smash and it's gone yeah can destroy young things so easy therefore young ideas need to be protected and um you can help that by being creative about it and sort of with that create some form of space for something that's young and vulnerable young ideas and young companies are vulnerable and so are the people who join them especially when they're talented but not yet experienced and that's um what i wanted to do
0: yeah i mean you know you We were saying earlier about sort of the unknown a little bit. You like to experiment into the unknown and let's think about how how this thing – and drug discovery is like that. But drug discovery in a startup is twice that. Yeah? Is that – I mean I don't see you ever going back to big pharma.
1: I think what I like is startups are messy in a good way Uh because you do not know yet. It's like a door that you step through and you have no idea what's in front of you. And all you have is, in a way, your experience and the impression that you had gathered over the years. That's all you have. And, of course, if you do this alone, you are very restricted because yeah. in, front you, uh, in front of you is this universe of possibilities and behind you is your slice of experience in the world. Therefore, the only way you can deal with this as you step through the door and every discovery is such a step The only way you can do this is to link up with other people and their experiences so that what's behind you and behind, you know, is as wide and broad so that once you step through this, you can be better off and maybe more educated. That's the group genius that you need. Right, yeah. And um, that's how every discovery sort of leads you towards sort of the next path.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you, this goes back to your time at Johns Hopkins, so you're at Johns Hopkins. There is a magazine article in Johns Hopkins Magazine, I think, r- mm-hmm. written by Rebecca Sklute on the Henrietta Lacks family and these cells, these cells that the HALA cells that have they reproduce endlessly. And you read the article and you reached out to the writer and said, "Hey, uh, you know, I work at Johns Hopkins and I work with these cells, and you know, maybe you can help put me in touch with the family." Now, I think a lot of people read that article. Certainly, a lot of people at Johns Hopkins read it. And certainly, other researchers did. But you're the one that reached out, and I think what I'm asking is like when I look at your your background, this sort of helping refugees, dealing with people who've been through torture, I mean these terrible things, and that was really satisfying to you, and then you come across this article and you have a level of empathy that then brings you to reach out to the writer. And I'm asking if you think you have more empathy than the average person, I guess.
1: I don't think so, but – I like to act it out. That's just how I think about it. I I think we all, we have a lot of empathy, all of us. The question is, what do we do with it? Sit down and be miserable or happy or like, you know. I feel like real empathy needs to translate into action. Mm -hmm. Otherwise,
0: it's... It's just an emotion.
1: An emotion. Yeah. And... I read that article, and it basically said, it reminded us that HeLa cells, as you just said, are so important. They were, they were on the moon, and they, there would be no polio vaccine without There would be no cancer understanding without mm-hmm. those because there were the first cells that, that multiplied. Yeah. And that the cells are coming from a woman whose cancer was taken out at Hopkins, and that family... At a time, still lived just two blocks away from Hopkins, but had no health insurance. Yeah. And I'm like, that makes no sense. And I believe, yeah, I reached out to the – I reached out to two people. I reached out to the officials of Hopkins and said, I read this and they should help. And I was not thinking of a big check or I was thinking of maybe a dinner or – or something like that, taking them out for lunch, or maybe helping them a little bit with the health insurance. That, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And I reached out to the author of the article, Rebecca Sklut, and said, like, hey, you know, anyway, whatever, I can help. I work with those cells every day. I don't know how, but I could help. Actually, I had an idea. Yeah. Um, I helped develop fish technology. Mm-hmm. And we were the first ones who colored those chromosomes in many colors. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had, at the time, used HeLa cells because they are tumor cells. There are a lot of changes in those chromosomes. And when you visualize each chromosome with a different color, you can see how many of those translocation and changes there are. Therefore, We had used that at the time. And I thought I could frame one of those colorful images of a HeLa of healer chromosomes and maybe give that to the family. Rebecca said, this is complicated. And maybe one day she'll come back to me And when the family is ready. And I'd sort of forgotten about it. But a lot of people ask me, why did I reach out? And, like, uh, I think if I thought through it, of course I hadn't thought about it because I just act out those emotions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it leads me to this other question, though, because, I mean, I read the book, right? And, um, you know, a lot of people are sort of like, well, they stole these cells from this woman. And as a researcher, you know that almost every cancer is biopsied, and this happens all the time. But what what was clear is that the family didn't know what was going on. They weren't aware. They weren't educated enough to understand what that meant that their mother's cells were everywhere beyond that. No one had really explained it to them, and that was wrong, number one. Number two, they had a lot of mistrust towards the health industry, the life sciences, doctors, everything else. And that's not uncommon. I mean, I've had other people on this show who've said there is distrust between the black communities. This is why you don't see more African-American researchers. And I want to ask you if you have any thoughts on how that distrust can be broken down.
1: It's very difficult. I sometimes speak at uh, colleges, a lot of African-American students, and we talk about that. And yes, that's that feeling is still there. That feeling of not uh, being part of it or not being uh, on par.
0: I mean, for for good reason. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment. There have been things in the past which give them ample. You
1: of know, course, but even clinical trials today, you know, sort of African American are mis- uh, sort of underrepresented, yeah, and yeah. I mean, it comes with many social economic reasons or whatever that go hand in hand at times. But yeah, we we struggle in in sort of medicine and and healthcare sort of with with. Uh, uh, equal treatment, of yeah. course. How can that? How can that trust be restored? I think it, um, it takes a lot, and it's difficult. I was actually a member of the uh, diversity council at Hopkins, and we thought a lot about that. How do you get more Black students to Hopkins? Uh, because it's still a white boy type of school, mm-hmm. and um, we offered scholarship, and I think Hopkins does a lot in the community, uh, in keeping businesses in Baltimore to sort of help that, and I think uh, more maybe than many, many other schools or universities. But if you are a black kid and you show up at Hopkins let's say for an interview, you will not see yourself. Yeah, Yeah. And that's the problem. It's a problem that will take many, many years to solve, and uh, any form of supporting that is, uh, I think, meaningful. And uh, that's why those little steps help. Uh, just this week, I believe, Hopkins decided and declared that the new research building will be named the Henrietta Lacks Research yeah. Building. Yeah. And this is important. Yeah, This is very, very important. And when um, the freshman students had as required reading at Hopkins, the book of Rebecca Skloot, The Life of Henrietta oh, Legs. Then I'm like, yes. You're, you're saying that is? It, 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 it is required? It was a few years ago. Yeah, okay, uh, absolutely. Right. I, maybe it still is, but yeah. if not, it should be. It should always be. Yeah. It's part of Hopkins. And um, yes, there were Hopkins researchers, but Hopkins was one of the few hospitals at the time that actually treated African-Americans. Yeah, that was in the book too. And um of course, consent was uh, dealt with differently than today. And, yeah, that, that empathy maybe didn't show because I think empathy always needs to result in some form of simplification. I really believe that. I believe that once you have empathy, you can simplify and then communicate. And if you don't simplify, you either have no empathy or you are not sort of following through, and that's important because African Americans at the time, when uh, the, Hen- the Henry Lex family was asked, Henry the Lex family was asked to donate blood in order to study more sort of the the relative cells. Um, when they heard about cells, the only association with cells they had was the prison cells. Yeah. They couldn't understand that there are cells which are like part of our body that sort of give rise to our tissues. It just needs to be explained. Yeah. If a, um, that gets lost yeah. sometimes yeah. Yeah. when you're not sort of thinking about it. And I think it starts with those little steps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have one more, one more question I want to ask you, and this is based off um, something you said earlier. But uh, I think – you tell me, but I think you're happy at Third Rock. I think you're happy at Celsius. I think you're happy doing what you're doing. It seems like a good fit. But do you sometimes think about, well, okay, actually I do want to return to Austria and live there and maybe do something that isn't life sciences, more towards, I don't know, there's obviously still refugee crisis in this world. We have lots of issues with immigration in this world.
1: It's that struggle, that tension, of course, that we have. Um, I think it's, in my case... But maybe for many of us, it's a bigger question. It's the question of sort of what do you want to achieve in mm. life and what what matters to you. And it's a complicated question. I always had a dream when I was 17 and read that book about that ca- cancer is life that goes wrong. Yeah. I just wanted to be part of a movement that understands the secrets that life is in the patients and give rise to diseases. And I wanted to be part of that discovery. And I think I did. And that's in a way also a selfish process. I think discovery and that feeling of it. I think somebody, I think uh, uh, some Nobel Prize winner said that once, said like discovery is this feeling of falling in love and reaching the top of a mountain. Both at once. Combined, yeah. And that's maybe also a selfish process. That satisfaction that we get out of it. But also it translates into a lot of powerful medicines, for Uh example. And therefore that was that second goal. That second goal was to participate in making a drug that makes people live that are supposed to be dead. And most of us don't experience that because... Only 1 out of 100 drugs that go into the clinic get actually approved. Mm -hmm. And only 1 out of 100 ideas that you have get in the clinic. Therefore, our process is a process of failure. And that's my postdoc experience also, that actually what most of us do is work on stuff that do not end up being successful. It's like if you were to sell shoes and then you retire. And they ask you what you did for your life. And you said, I never sold a pair of shoes. That's our job. Yeah. Every day, show up, go into the shop and try to sell it. (laughs) Reposition them and do it differently and different signs on the outside and everything. Till late at night, and then you close your shop, and, and another shoes. day of selling a pair. That's what we do, day in and day out, till we end up doing this. Yeah, that's our life of a scientist. And I wanted to break that, and I wanted to sell a lot of shoes and make a lot of people happy with their shoes in a way. And I did that. Yeah. And now I'm dealing with the question that you ask. Anyway, satisfied what I wanted to do, I've sort of, I am, I sort of, am part of this discovery excitement which i lived through and i did good to our communities and the people who are sick and the question is what do you want to do because we are getting older and uh, we are getting weaker and one day we what what what's what's left what's left to do and is it been going back to your roots where you have your emotional connection, which continues to be, of course, my country. That's where, when I smell bread.
0: It brings you in home. In Austria, it ah.
1: brings me home. Yeah. When I sort of, um, when I see the mountains and the snow, now it's uh, like we are end of October. Um, the, the snow is coming in. And uh, I mean, that's the time where it's foggy in the morning. And like, it's like, it's part of, my belonging Yeah. and I'm not sure I need to figure out what's next currently for now at least I want to help find maybe another drug or two yeah and then we'll take it from there (laughs) perfect thanks for coming in I appreciate (laughs) the time thank you
0: All right, that's it, Christoph Lengauer on first rounders. Uh, thank you, Christoph, for coming in. Fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for making the time and and um, and for traveling into our studio. If you um, want to talk about this show, or our journal, or anything else that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Um, What else can I tell you? Thanks again to Johns Hopkins University for sponsoring this podcast. Go to enterprise.jhu.edu for more information on their Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program. Um, I don't think I have anything else to say. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. And that is all. I will talk to you later, and goodbye.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and
0: 365-day returns. Hey, y'all. Ferris Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music,